This is episode 132 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science, new discoveries, exciting times in our slimed and scaly brethren. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. And in this 132nd installment, we've got an episode about frogs and we're going to be talking about some pretty crazy stuff that's been going on with frogs in the exclusion zone and surrounds of Chernobyl in Ukraine and got a paper about how a particular species of frog has changed in response to the nuclear disaster that occurred and yeah I mean should we just get stuck into the paper Ben? Yeah I think so I don't think there's any needs to be any lead up whatsoever let's just let's just go Let's just do it. Yeah. So this paper was by Baracco and Oriazaula in 2022, Ionizing Radiation and Melanism in Chernobyl Tree Frogs, published in Evolutionary Applications. See, now you're usually not a fan of spoilers in titles for things. And I feel like the sort of melanism aspect is a slight spoiler that we're not dealing with giant mutated frogs a la giant mutated worms at the beginning of one of the most dubious quality Godzilla films. Was there giant worms in one of the Godzilla films? Was yeah, that that's how you get one? introduced to Nick Totopoulos in the nineteen the Roland Emmerich Godzilla mayhem. I'm he's electrocuting lie. worms. <laughs> I still love that film. Yeah, it's I so do too. To me. Yeah. <laughs> when they fly over the big footprint. Oh, it gets me going big time. I think I was like, I was probably about eight or something by the time it had come to VHS after it was out. Yeah. I was obviously too young to go and see it in the cinema. I have very vivid memories of being extremely excited by that film. It kind of devolves into a bit of daftness when the eggs and the underground bit starts kicking off. Oh, but absolutely. at least the beginning, like where the Godzilla's bowling around the city and causing <laughs> carnage. Incredible. I mean, I like the most recent Godzilla film as well. The, well, I mean, I know there's Godzilla films coming out near constantly, but um, the last like big budget proper kaiju film was super cool as well. Um, you're talking American Godzilla movies, so you're not talking your Toho Godzillas. No, well, Shin Godzilla is meant to be really good. Which it is, is. Is it? Yeah. Absolutely. It kind of more focuses on the metaphor, right? Like, is yeah, my understanding. Yeah, I like it because it's more a procedural <laughs> of people sitting in committees discussing how to deal with Godzilla. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I need to watch it's it. It's got that's a different one... feel. It's, it's very, very that's good. That's in Japanese, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I need to drag that film down. I swear we've been talking about that film for like ages. I need to find it and watch it. I've got the most recent American one on DVD in 3D. I don't even have a 3D. I don't have a means of playing 3D films. But like if I go around to a friend's house who's got a 3D TV, you better believe I'll bring it with me. With your little glasses. No, no. It's uh, Be like yeah, Godzilla's no, in the room with you. Incredible. It is a little bit overwhelming. But we're not dealing with giant Godzillas or miniature Godzillas or any type of Godzillas. We're dealing no. with tree frogs. Yeah. Irradiated um, tree frogs. Yeah. So on a sort of slightly somber note, we'll just touch on the Chernobyl accident. But now apparently you're, sp and in this paper, they spell Chernobyl with an O because apparently that's the Ukrainian spelling. So um, apparently it's better to say Chernobyl. How was it spelt before? The Russian spelling is with an E. Ah, Chernobyl. Okay. The Ukrainian spelling is with an O. And I noticed that when they refer to the accident, it's Chernobyl. But when they refer to the place, it's Chernobyl. So I think, yeah, it's like the Chernobyl accident, but it took place in Chernobyl, which is quite confusing. That's but weird because in the we'll abstract, try. they're using Chernobyl through the entirety of it, accident and all. 
Oh, are they? Oh, my mistake. Maybe I was reading a different source. Yeah. yeah. So they're gone Chernobyl. So yeah, it was in Ukraine in 1986. There was this flawed nuclear reactor with badly trained personnel. There was a big explosion of steam and fire and a lot of the react, well, 5% of the radioactive reactor core flew into the environment. And um, yeah, we had radioactive material deposited in many parts of Europe. There was like 30 people died from the blast and radiation immediately after in the sort of short term fallout. And about 60 have died in the decades since. So, you know, it's a human disaster. A lot of that's radiation-induced cancer. And there's apparently 1.8 million people in Ukraine who have status as disaster victims. Mm. So it's kind of like one of those ones where it's evolving over time. A lot, you know, a lot of those people may end up with cancers or disabilities as a result of this as time goes on. The ramifications basically aren't really fully understood. So it's a big-time human tragedy, very, very sad disaster. And it was the largest release of radioactive material to the environment ever. And we know it had this huge human cost. And talking about TV series, if you want to see a dramatization of it, which is fantastic, there's a program called Chernobyl, which is great. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Oh, mate, it's so dark, but it's so... Yeah, that's one of the reasons I've somewhat avoided it. (laughs) It's so gripping, though, mate. I swear, there's something about the sound of a Geiger counter, which just instills this very primal fear in me. But Which yeah, it shouldn't be anyway. a primal fear at all. It's a very modern, <laughs> spooky noise. But It uh, really is, yeah. It taps it. I know what you mean. Yeah. So yeah, sure, Nobel. And uh, yeah, obviously this is a big human disaster, but for a long time, people have been curious about what effect this had on the animals in the surrounding area. And so this study was all about looking at differences in the dorsal, so this is the coloration on the back, of eastern tree frogs, which are Hyla orientalis, And these frogs are widespread all around Chernobyl. They've got a very wide distribution, actually. Mm -hmm. But they are found across a large gradient of radioactive contamination. So they're found in lots of different places which received various amounts of radioactive contamination after the disaster. And the question was, can we measure differences in the skin coloration of these frogs in different places? Right, because the idea is that coloration and specifically sort of melanin based colorations can have benefits in terms of like trapping harmful molecules of all sorts of stuff i think we talked about it before with like heavy metals can get Mm. sort of you know if you're trapping them in a what's the right they're not quite proteins are they some sort of pigment they're not moving around the body causing harm right you lock them away somewhere that's (laughs) sort of yeah yeah or you turn them into something else that's less harmful yeah we talked about it with sea snakes we talked about it with pigeons yeah we talked about it with peppered moths the famous example of the industrial revolution peppered moths that turned black yeah lots of animals do this yeah so it's a little bit of that it's sort of how are animals dealing with this influx of you know radioactive material and sort of ionizing radiation is coloration something that's working for them is it not Is it working for these frogs specifically? And does it have sort of lasting effects? Is it, are we dealing with something sort of like a plastic sort of situation where just the frogs that are immediately impacted see a change and then over time this is lessened? Or is it something that's had a more more profound effect which uh, echoes to uh, tree frogs living today? It's the second one. Right? Right? 
Yeah. What do you want to start with? Well, let's just talk first about the skin coloration, right? It was yeah. just straight up. It was straight up darker in localities which were closest to high radiation levels from the accident. Right. Radiation levels at the act at the time of the accident. Exactly. Not yeah. current radiation levels. Yeah. So radiation levels wax and wane in time. Obviously, radioactive material is got a half-life and it gets less radioactive over time. So yeah, when the accident first happened, the patterns of radioactivity will be different than today. Yeah, the one that they, they highlighted in the discussion was, I think it was iodine-131, which has a half-life of like eight, nine days, something along those lines. So in terms of lasting effects, you are going to, yeah, things are, <laughs> things are changing quite rapidly at the beginning and then that change is going to sort of decrease as it goes on in terms of like quantity of radiation these frogs are being exposed to. Yeah. So tree frogs living within the Chernobyl exclusion zone had a remarkably darker coloration than those from outside the zone. But yeah, like it's reflective of where they were close to the time of the disaster. So essentially what that means is that soon after the disaster, frogs with darker coloration seem to have had some kind of benefit over frogs with a lighter coloration. And so in areas where there was a lot of radiation, there seems to have only been left or been a much higher percentage of darker colored frogs after the accident, suggesting that like, if you didn't have darker skin and you were in an area of high radiation, just didn't make it. Yeah. So they also took current like radiation dose levels of the frogs they were sampling and that there doesn't seem to be an association with current radiation levels and the skin luminance is what they measured it looks like the situation is something genetic like you're saying a selective pressure at the time as opposed to a reaction to radiation levels because otherwise you could see you would expect darker frogs or lower skin luminance frogs to have higher radiation dosages but that's just not the case like there's yeah current radiation is mixed historic radiation yeah higher is lower luminance or darker skin yep and the reason for that they think is because as you kind of alluded to at the start dark coloration can protect against radiation reduces dna damage it neutralizes free radicals particularly melanin pigmentation uh, has been suggested to be able to sort of take ionizing radiation and buffer against its effects. Yeah, what was one of the things they were saying about lipid peroxidization? Peroxidation? Which is so lipids sort of, what, sort of fatty acid-like stuff being damaged by, by free radicals, which are, what's a free radical? It's like a renegade electron. That's how I like to think about it. <laughs> so it's very reactive and basically yeah. changes the chemical composition of stuff that you might actually need. So if you've got something that soaks up or can just take away those free radicals, yeah, you're going to be protecting your, your lipids in certain cases. Or at least that's one of the ones, one of the ways it can affect them that they highlighted, which I think is quite a, yeah, nice way of thinking about it. It's like a, think of it like a sponge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. So darker frogs have this protective sponge against radiation and... You can soak up these electrons, yeah. Yeah, and even today... Within the Chernobyl, Chernobyl, Chernobyl exclusion zone, frogs are still darker generally than ones outside the exclusion zone. Right. And there was this like historical pattern of the higher the radiation when it first happened, the darker the frogs are. And to me, this is just like the most bonkers example of evolution taking place to protect against something which is kind of incredibly 
distant from what these animals could kind of reasonably expect to experience outside of human intervention. Like you're not going to get a massive radioactive disaster without humans mucking about with nuclear energy. Right. So I was saying about iodine-131, I think that is one of, like it exclusively comes from sort of nuclear power sort of situations like that require i don't think that's a naturally occurring isotope of iodine so and again that's that's one that's producing these these free radicals these frogs have to deal with it's yeah it doesn't come it's you're not going to come across a particularly high dosage of (laughs) radioactive iodine in everyday frog life yeah no and i think there are some frogs which are almost black, right? There's a few which are super, super dark. But yeah. generally, they're still green. They're just much, much darker green compared to ones which live... Like, the ones outside the exclusion zone are generally have luminances above sort of like 40. I don't know what that meant. It was a relative measure, I believe, oh, okay, that they normalised between 0 gotcha. and 100. So I don't think it has Doesn't units. have a value. Okay, that It's just relative luminance. Makes my life easier. But yeah, you know, they're not... The ones outside are very bright green. The ones inside are like a very noticeably darker green with some individuals, a few that are just like almost black. Um, But yeah, I think it's just this crazy example of, you know, rapid evolution in the face of a completely novel human mediated threat. You know, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of frogs died horrible deaths of radiation exposure silently in these woodlands surrounding Ukraine. And there's evidence from other species like birds and such that, um, you know, being red and yellow isn't as good as being dark if you're going to live in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Yeah. Yeah. The other cool thing was that it doesn't seem to have affected their body condition. So it doesn't seem like this darker coloration is a trade-off. Yeah, they're not doing worse because they're having to put more effort into, I don't know, producing sort of melanin-related coloration to guard against another exposure of it because it's a sort of historic thing it's not an active selective pressure as much anymore or doesn't seem to be so there's not this sort of negative consequence which is sitting around when it comes to body condition which is good so it's sort of it is good you know maybe i don't do you feel like this is sort of a bottleneck situation that sort of sudden sort of point of very very harsh selective pressure and then a lessening off of it are we talking bottleneck territory I think so, probably, yeah. I think what you're describing is probably accurate, where there was this massive pressure, the dark ones survived, the light ones didn't, or certainly there was enough light ones dying to dramatically darken the population as a whole. But now that radiation is sort of calming down a bit, a lot of these areas don't have the historical radiation levels, I wouldn't be surprised to see that these frogs are kind of gradually lightening again, because I can't imagine the habitat has changed that dramatically, that being dark is useful, aside from... right radiation protection so you'd anticipate that like in the next 100 200 300 years whatever it might be these frogs are probably going to start to go back towards being light colored yeah yeah i mean they did mention that there is gene flow between the frogs inside the exclusion zone and outside so there's scope for you know that bottleneck to be softened that sort of genetic hotspot of melanin darker coloration frogs to sort of soften out essentially in terms of like pace of it happening what did they say? 10 to 15 generations of frogs have passed since the accident and it's still persistent. So who knows? Who knows? I think it depends how well darker frog coloration does outside of the exclusion zone, I suppose, because if it does have another benefit that we're not aware of, you could expect it to actually sort of spread more. 
And what was needed mm. was this like really harsh selective pressure to kickstart it. And if there's no other trade-offs, it might just persist. Time will tell. Yeah. Time will tell what these eastern tree frogs, Hyla orientalis, what their coloration does in the future. Hopefully, uh, yeah, I'm sure herpetologists of the future will be musing about this. Yeah, they did. There's one bit in the discussion where they lament the fact that they didn't have any frog data from prior to the accident. That, yeah, admittedly is, is a shame because you'd love to have that comparison before and after. But given how like stark and clear this distinction is and the relationship between the radiation levels at the time of the accident, I think you'd be hard-pressed to suggest it was just, oh no, they've always been just darker there for some other reason. Because they did a very yeah. good job controlling for like pH and temperature and sort of other environmental factors too, which is worth mentioning. Very cool, very cool. So we have the case of the darkening frogs, Hyla orientalis, and from one species of very well, decreasingly green tree frog, to a species of frog which probably couldn't actually possibly be any more green. <laughs> this is our species of the bi week. And this is a paper by Varello Soto, Abarca, Brenes Mora, Aspinall, Linders and Sheepak. And again, published in 2022, a new species of brilliant green frog of the genus Tlalocohyla, hiding between two volcanoes of northern Costa Rica, published in Zootaxa. That is a hard one, isn't it? Tlalocohyla? I think you're doing good. Tlalocohyla. I think that works. Yeah. Shit. Thanks, mate. Another tree so, frog. Yeah. Well, is it? I think well, it's more of like a bush frog. <laughs> I was more just going with the inclusion of Hyla, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Tree frog by family. Hyla day. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we are in Costa Rica, actually, so a far cry from the woodlands of Ukraine in a nature reserve called Tapir Valley Nature Reserve, which is on the Caribbean slope of Tenorio Volcano in Alajuela province, Costa Rica. So um, yeah, we're on the side of a volcano in a really nice nature reserve, which was created to conserve the habitat of tapirs in Costa Rica. Obviously, tapirs considered to be well worth conserving because of their hilarious charismatic nature and <laughs> funny not quite an elephant noses i mean definitely who doesn't but, love a yeah, they are. i love tapirs they're probably one of my favorite mammals and um i really like the babies because they're so cute and stripy yeah, well, i've said yeah. it a hundred times yeah. i'll say it again they yeah. got down with the <laughs> but yeah positive externality of conserving this area for tapirs is that obviously many many other animals are protected in the area that is left without too much human intervention and yeah this is like a wetland surrounded by tropical forest and they've described a new species and it's separated from its closest relatives by at least 500 kilometers so we've got some nice geographical isolation they're evolving as a distinct lineage they also appear to be genetically and morphologically different they look different they have different genes and they're geographically separated than their closest relative which is Tlalocohyla picta, which is found in southern Honduras. And yeah, they've described this brilliantly green species of frog with this like really nice stripe on its back that is sort of reddish. And what have they called it? Tlalocohyla celeste. Mm hmm. Great lovely name, sounding right? name. Really nice. And the reason they've called it Tlalocohyla celeste is celeste means light blue or sky blue in Spanish. 
and refers to the striking blue coloration seen on this frog's armpits and groin. So if you look at the armpits and groin of this frog, they're nice and blue. And similarly, when the males are calling, which they like doing from bushes and on grasses, mainly on like leaves, actually. And when they're calling their vocal sac, which is that bit underneath their chin, which puffs out, can also be seen to be bright blue when it's inflated. So you've got these brilliantly beautiful, tiny little green frogs with their blue armpits and their big blue sac when they're calling. And there's another reason for it, Ben. There's another reason they called it Celeste, and it's to celebrate the river, which is the Rio Celeste, which is famously turquoise blue, and its watershed feeds the wetlands that provide the habitat for this. Look at that. That's a smart double meaning right there. That's, yeah. yeah. That's That's got to be up there with the best meanings we've had of scientific names, I'd say. It's very good. How big is this frog? It's tiny, right? It's like one of the smallest hylids. Two centimeters. Yeah, it's minuscule. So it's one of the smallest hylids, one of the smallest tree frogs in history. I think we've done a disservice to saying how unbelievably green this frog is. Yeah. It looks luminous, like glowing green, like fluorescent highlighter green. It's outrageous. It's sort of unnatural in that sense. It really doesn't look like a green. I don't know if it's just the sort of colour, the, um, I don't know if it's, uh, what do you call it? The white balance of the photos and the colour grading of the photos. But holy smokes. It's green. Yeah, it doesn't look real to me. It looks like a fake frog. Yeah. It's incredible. Honestly, macro photography is amazing. Like the photos in this paper of this tiny yeah. little frog that's outrageously two centimeters long. good. It's so so cool. Yeah, I re- recommend that everyone at least Google's the Tlaloca Hyla Celeste to have a look at it because it is super super think, cool. Yeah, the paper's open too, so you can get. You should be able to get to these photos specifically. Ah, there you go. And. So they mentioned in the paper that this frog was first noticed by its call. Unfortunately, we couldn't find a copy of the call to play to you because I don't know why. Because people like to <laughs> be it's... difficult their data sometimes. Well, yeah, I'm just wondering if it's been uploaded and just hasn't popped up yet. Because what, this is a 2022 paper, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I shouldn't. Yeah, It not... might just be it takes time to go through Phonozoo's system. Mm, maybe but anyway the place it's supposed to be in the paper you can't find it yeah but regardless the males of this species cool year round but they cool the most in times where it's raining because you know they're frogs frogs and rain they're just like two peas in a pod and um, they start vocalizing in the afternoon and they continue throughout the night so this is the males sitting on the end of leaves making their cool and they actually mate on the leaves themselves the females rock up they lay up to 60 eggs and the male then fertilizes them and the eggs are encased in this kind of sticky gunge which sticks them to the leaves and they always lay their eggs over water so as the tadpoles are developing in this sort of like blob of sticky gunge they're over a body of water and when the tadpoles sort of well when they turn into tadpoles from eggs after about nine days they start wiggling around in the gunge and that causes them to drop down into the water where they exist as tadpoles until they've eaten enough to metamorphose and they're only known from one single wetland system in the privately owned Tapir Valley Nature Reserve. Yeah. And this is a wet place. It's wet by name and wet by nature. 3,500 millimetres of rain per year, which is three times as much as I get here in North Wales. And I can confirm it's wet here. It's raining right now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty serious amount of precipitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Precipitation, no joke. And what do they eat? Small flies and micro moths. And it's presumed that they eat a variety of small invertebrates, which is pretty froggish behavior. Yeah, well, they have to be pretty damn small to fit in a two centimeter frog. So, micro moth, yeah, that's the only type of moth they're getting. Yeah, and they don't know what eats the frogs themselves, although they suspect 
that snakes eat them. There's lots of uh, mm. frog-eating snakes. And also there's these things called steenid spiders, which apparently are common frog predators, and they ah, abound in the wetlands. There you go. Yep. I mean, again, tiny frog. It's kind of anything that's about that size is probably going to have a go. Yep, it's a soft, delicious little treat. I'm very green, although presumably that's good camouflage. Yes, especially, yeah, you think sort of very high productivity sort of forest area, lots of new growth, wetness, dampness. Yeah. So that's probably just about it for our uh, brand new species of frog, Tlaloka Hyla Celeste. Have you, Ben, got any other business? Not yet, because I want to say about the frogs in a super small area. So it's sort of suggested that it's probably not doing brilliantly conservation status wise because it's such a restricted distribution but the sort of benefit is that it is in a very protected area so yeah critically endangered but also kind of good because it's protected that was the last thing i wanted to say about that beautiful frog love it tapir valley nature reserve sounds incredible my only other business that i do have yes i have a preprint coming out imminently i don't know exactly what a date they haven't given me a date yet but it should be out imminently that describes what I've been working on for the past like 10, eight months. That is a animal movement simulation. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to really say about it other than the game plan is that you give it a bunch of sort of parameters and it creates something that approximates animal movement so you can play around with it and uh, test out the analysis that you would be planning on your real data that you don't have yet. Wow. Well, they say that's the game plan. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how things progress but uh that sounds dope early days good stuff man congratulations that sounds like it's going to be wicked yeah i'm hoping it should i'm going to play around people. with it yeah yeah oh well well done you mate so- it's come a little bit too late for you because it's the sort of thing that you'd want to do during study design <laughs> sort of stages but uh you've been useful to me in many other ways well, ben. No, don't yeah. feel bad Uh, that's awesome mate look forward to seeing that and uh, yeah we'll put a link in the show notes right yeah i guess i'll add a link to the show notes when i have a link to link to as i say i don't know exactly when that will be like proofs are all approved it should be imminent it's just yeah great stuff great stuff so beyond that i've got a couple of patrons to say thanks we've got the return of brandon barassa so thanks very much, Brandon, and also a new patron called Rikus. So yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Hugely appreciated. Hugely appreciated. Yeah. Means a lot. And if you want to become our patron, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. Everyone who does, we're extremely grateful for. So thanks very much. Or listen for free. It's your call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's about it for this episode about the irradiated frogs of Chernobyl. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on social media at herphighlights. And yeah, I think that's about it. All that remains to be said. Oh, just to say, if you become our patron now, you get a sticker. So uh, well worth it. Even if you just donate a dollar a month, I will personally post you a sticker and the stickers are <laughs> wicked. They've got a flat necked chameleon on them, which is actually one of the flat necked chameleons that I've studied in my master's project, which Ben turned into this really cool piece of art. So, um, yeah, if you want one of those, become our patron for one dollar a month or bump into me in real life and I'll give you one. <laughs> <laughs> the cheaper but more complicated option. <laughs> yeah. Don't hunt me down, though. Anyway, yeah, so I think that's it, right? All that remains to be said is uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening.